Let's take our Bibles and let's go to Psalm 42, Psalm chapter 42. And we're going to address the subject today in our series, You Asked For It. Here's the issue. Vibrancy. How do we prevent becoming stagnant in our relationship or our walk as Christians? How do we... How do we prevent becoming stagnant in our relationship or our walk as Christians? Well, the last big snow that we had, and by the way, our next big snow could be right around the corner. The snow lovers are excited. The snow haters are angry. <laughs> that we, were, we were snowed in, and as you know, the, the street that, that we live on is uh, pretty good for, sle- for sledding and not too good for driving when you drive a massive Toyota Camry. And Jen comes in and she says, you know, we're snowed in. She says, I know how much you love these chocolate chip cookies because I had dropped a couple of hints. She said, I'm going to make some chocolate chip cookies. Now there's chocolate chip cookies and then there's the kind that Jen Robinson makes. They're absolutely Awesome. Like, they're, they're so good, you feel like just punching somebody in the throat after you eat them. I mean, they're like violently good. And so she comes in, and they're, they're steaming, and we had, we had real milk. And for those of you who like water, like Ron Swanson says, that lies about being milk, a.k.a. skim, a.k.a. hashtag boo, a.k.a. communism, right? And we had, man, some whole milk, and I'm like, wow, I'm not doing what Stalin would do, which would be to drink skim milk and so we had fresh chocolate chip cookies it's beautiful outside all the snow is there and then we have real milk and so she comes in and I'm there on the couch I'm like thank you Jesus I mean better than I deserve and I'm just I'm devouring these things like it's my last meal at a state prison it's embarrassing you know and so I'm eating these cookies and then all of a sudden they're just not there like they're gone and, and there was something that I had bought a couple days before. I finally asked Jen to let me buy these, and I convinced her, can I get a witness? They are called donut sticks. Now, if, you, if you're not educated here this morning, let me, let, you, let me educate you on this. These are the only donut anythings that can stay in a box for years and still be identifiable as donut-esque. And so we had bought some, and by the way, for these things, let me just read you. This does tie in the sermon, I promise. Maybe. <laughs> these are some of the, the ingredients on this box of beautiful Little Debbie donut sticks. Xanthan gums. You can get that in car wax as well. This is my favorite, because we could go on all day. Titanium dioxide. Titanium. This means, guys, that if you eat donut sticks, you will be a man of steel. Yeah? And it just goes on and on. And, and here's the thing. I, I finally got these. And, and, and by the way, if you haven't had chocolate chip cookies, they're not that bad. But I reached over, and the only thing that was there, and by the way, there's... There's a fourth of one in there, and then there's one. There's one left right here. So this is up for grabs after, afterwards. <laughs> but I kid you not, going from these, these absolutely soft, steaming, beautiful creations 
from Jan who's been created by God, chocolate chip, world class, kill somebody for it, chocolate chip cookies with whole milk, and then you go to a donut stick. That is called going from the lush green pastures of the promised land onto the planet of Mars. And you're like, this guy thinks way too much about his food. But as I was thinking about this message, I said, you know what? Because we, we, by the way, we as Americans, we think a lot about food. Food drives a lot of the commercials. It drives a lot of our life. Some of us, our relationship with food is we love food. Once we eat it and we finish, we start thinking about the next time that we have a little mono a mono with food. But when you go from something so great to something that doesn't even compare, I said, you know what? That's, a, that's almost a silly illustration to how some of us, and maybe the ones of you that, that gave these types of questions when we had our question receiving time, you say, look, I'm serving God and things seem to be so good, but then it seems like I enter into a time of spiritual dryness and stagnation. It seems like I'm trying to read the Bible and I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to grow more like Jesus, but it seems like I went from the chocolate chip steaming cookie of awesomeness with God to something that's dry and stale in comparison, and I don't know how to get out of the rut. Well, Jesus used many farming examples in Scripture. One of those examples is that we are the sower of the gospel seed. And if you've talked to any farmer, no matter what type of farming they do, drought is an essential part of farming. And here's something that may help us that we cannot guarantee a drought-free Christian life. So here's your simple answer to the question, how do we prevent, notice the phrasing, how do we prevent becoming stagnant in our relationship or our walk with Jesus Christ? Here's the simple answer. You and I cannot guarantee a drought-free or a stagnant-free Christian life. You cannot guarantee it, because you see, we'll get to this in just a moment, but Tim Keller gives one of the greatest points I've ever heard in relation to this subject. He says that Americans ask these kinds of questions, because in America, if something goes really, really bad, do you know what we automatically look for? We look for someone at fault, and we look for someone to sue. True or not true? Liability governs everything we do, even down from a yard sale all the way to the building of a brand new school. Liability governs everything that we do. And he said that as Americans, we sometimes come to our walk with Christ and come to the scripture saying if everything is not working as it should, someone has to be at fault. So therefore, something is wrong. You see, dryness does not mean, or stagnation, if you will, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the plant. Are we tracking? Here's what A.W. Tozer says. He says, the way to deeper knowledge of God is through the lonely valleys of soul poverty and the abnegation, which is the renouncing of all things. So what we're going to do today is much of what we did last week. We're going to look at Psalm 42, which deals with the psalmist experiencing a loss in what he feels to be the presence of God. But before we do that, there's some prolegomena that we need to go for, uh, some preparation so that we don't misunderstand this text because you and I, for most of us, we've probably lived here most of our lives and we see the Bible and our lives 
through American eyes and maybe not through biblical eyes. But here's some possible causes or sources of spiritual stagnation and spiritual drought. Number one, you could be experiencing drought because of the exhaustion caused by the, and this is in your notes, the insane pace of the average American family life. Are you here this morning? Like, we're not saying the busy, we're not saying the crazy, we're not saying the overly scheduled, we're talking about the step back, look it at it from a rational perspective, the insane pace of family life in America. Let me give you a couple of statistics. 77% of people who regularly experience physical symptoms caused by stress. 77% experience physical symptoms that are caused by stress. 73% regularly experience psychological symptoms caused by stress. You see, the American lifestyle is that we go to work, we go to school, and then every night of the week, for the most part, we have to fill it with stuff. And not only that, now, we're about to, we're an equal opportunity offender at Rocky Mount Baptist Church. So let me prep you with that before we say, and there's some of us that we say, you know what, so our children don't miss out on the American dream. What we need to do is load up Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday with travel sports. How many of you have heard of Tim Tebow? Couple? Tell your story. Several years ago, um, it was probably about this was early 2000s. My parents um, were living in Florida, and there was First Baptist Church of Jacksonville that brought their youth group down to help with some ministry. Somebody tell me Tebow's home church, First Baptist Jacksonville. And I remember seeing all of these students in our worship center, and there was this one kid who's in middle school, but he was bigger than I was, taller. And if you can imagine, had more muscles than me. And it was so crazy because I, I was helping out with the youth, and the girls would walk by and they'd go, Hi, Timmy. And then they just walk away and kind of do that little dance that the girls do, right? Like, was that too close? Maybe some for comfort. And here's the, here's the awesome thing. He came, he was a part of that youth group. His family loves Jesus. He came to serve. But you could see, like in eighth grade, this dude is a genetic anomaly, like an eighth grade, humble, sweet kid who loved Jesus could probably beat up every man in that church. I say that to say this. Our family, we were a sports family growing up. I have two brothers who played college ball. One played basketball and baseball. We, Dad brought us up. I mean, all of the sports teachers, how to throw a football, how to, how to, you know, pop your wrist, point to the back of the rim, basketball, the whole in our snap your wrist with baseball. That was our family. So what I'm about to say is not from somebody who's hid in his basement who hates sports, is intimidated by them. What I'm about to say is hopefully helpful to families in the 21st century America. Then unless your child... And I'm going to offend a lot of people. Fred, we may have plenty of room next week. <laughs> Unless your child is a genetic anomaly who is gifted with unusual strength, size, agility, and quickness. And guys, because you haven't gone to your closet and opened up the door and pulled out the high school yearbook and looked at your picture and said, you know what? The dream needs to die with you. Goodbye. I'm moving on with adult life. 
If you haven't done that, what you will find yourself doing is trying to take your child who you love and they love you, they're awesome, but they're not Tebow, and you're going to try to drain yourself emotionally, mentally, and financially, and financially. Let me say again, money cha-ching, bling, bling. You are draining yourselves financially so that when they come to 18 years old, they've done a million sports, but they don't know anything about God because you've soaked up every single available weekend to teach them something they probably won't even get a scholarship for in college. Now you tell me what's stupid and what's not. That's a strong word, but I'm telling you it's absolutely insane. You say, Jeff, why do you bring up Tebow? If you have a child that you say God is predestined before the foundation of time, my child will be a phenom at this sport. It's very well possible that God could use even weekend sports for that child to use that later on to have a platform for the gospel. But if you have an average Man, you should see y'all's faces. <laughs> this may be our last Sunday here, Jen. I don't know. But if your child is a normal human being with normal genetics like most of us in here, and you try to smash and to prod and to kick and to beat that child into some type of a professional softball player, football player, basketball, you're doing them a disservice. You're draining your family of spiritual vitality for something that they probably won't even be able to use past 18. And some of you guys will get mad at me for pointing out plain stupidity. And now that it's quiet, let's go to the next point. The point there is that if your lifestyle is so insanely packed that you find yourself, I mean, continually drained of all of these things, it very well could be you're not experiencing dryness, you're just plain old tired. And Jerry Vine said one of the greatest things that you can do, one of the most spiritual things you can do often is to take a nap and recharge. Second reason why we could be experiencing dryness, because I know you guys so love that first point. And we'll probably get emails, but that's okay. Number two, it could be that you're experiencing dryness or stagnation because of unconfessed sin. This could be unforgiveness, an issue of lust, Gluttony, pride, a hard heart, bitterness to where you're like a walking volcano because you've not surrendered that person who's offended you in the past to God. And we talked about that two weeks ago. That could be a cause. Third, there could be the cause where you're isolating yourself from quality Christian community. It means when you're uh, neglecting studying the Bible and doing life with a group of Christian believers. I hear this all the time. You say, well, now, Jeff, I appreciate that point. Not really. All right. But you see, I have my own relationship with God. I don't need the church. I don't need a Sunday school class. I don't need a small group. I don't need other believers to tell me how to live my life with Christ. That's only something that you really experience in the Western world. And here's a question for those of you who say, you know what, I don't need anybody, I'm the exception. And by the way, when you say you don't need God's people, that means us telling God, I'm the exception. Like, God, you tell people in your word to be plugged into community, to not forsake the assembling of themselves with other believers. You see, I'm special, God. That's for all of those losers that don't have what we've got going on. 
That means that we can come to the scripture and open it up and read as much as we want to and come away with like, well, I thought I was awesome before that, but I am double awesome after reading that scripture because we bring an asterisk to every single verse that we come to in scripture that gives us an out on what God clearly says to do. And another question, if, if you say, well, Jeff, I'm one of these people and I don't need the church, I don't need community from other believers, how do you know you're even on track? From the Manhattan Project to building a house, there's very few people, if any, that are going to come to a project and say, you know what, I don't need any outside advice, I've got this whole thing taken care of. You say, well, what about Rembrandt? Therein may be a small indication of massive arrogance. I'll let you fill in the pieces. The book of Proverbs in the Bible in chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 says, whoever isolates himself, let me check that again, whoever, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment, but a fool takes pleasure in understanding no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Number four, it could be, and this is where we'll end up in Psalm 42, it could be that if you are experiencing a time of spiritual dryness and stagnation, it could be something that has been caused by God for your growth. It very well could be that you're doing absolutely nothing wrong. And it could be that God is leading you through a time of dryness in order to develop a strength of character to prepare you for something great. You see, times of dryness, drought, those do not mean that there's something wrong. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. But what it means is that, hey, we cannot control the weather. Amen? We can't control the weather. We cannot control what people say to us, how they treat us in an ultimate sense, but what it means is that we can still search for water. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said, before God will use a man greatly, he will wound him deeply. You see, simply put, we cannot guarantee a stagnation, drought-free relationship with God. And if we've searched our heart, and we say, oh God, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way within me, and we confess as much as we want to confess, and it seems like we're still hitting a wall, it very well could be that God is giving us a time of brokenness, of dryness, to bring us through, to teach us things about who he is that we could never learn outside of that. So be encouraged, Rocky Mount Baptist Church. You say, man, I come to church, and I see all these people, and they're smiling, they're singing the songs, they're doing great. By the way, that's not always true. Appearances can be deceiving. But you see, man, I'm trying to follow Christ, and it seems like the heavens are his brass. It seems like I'm trying to hit the prayer with the badminton all the way to the moon, and I can't get it past the ceiling. The same thing happened often to people in Scripture, but most pointedly in Psalm 42, here's the psalmist's words. He says in verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. You see this desire for God? Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God. For the, oh, this is cool, man. For the, come on, the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? 
So there's this desire here, but in verse three, it goes down a notch. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So the psalmist who's been inspired by God to write what we're reading here is going through a point in his life to where he literally says, all that I seem to be consuming is tears for my food. There's mental, you could say mental and emotional persecution from other people. And in verse four, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. He said, you know what, it's like I remember these better days. Notice how the verse continues. How I would go with the throng or with the group and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, God, I'm pouring out my soul. I remember times to where I was good with people and they were good with me and it seemed like I was good with you, but right now, all that I have for sustenance is tears. Then in verse five, this is a powerful, powerful key. He begins to question himself. Notice, he says, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? You see, there's talking to yourself that most of us are severely embarrassed when that happens, when we get caught. And then there's actually questioning ourselves with the word of God. He's questioning himself. And he's saying, why are you cast down? And then notice how the questioning there in verse 5, the last part of the verse, switches to preaching to himself. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is good news because it means, first off, as a believer in Christ, again, we cannot guarantee a drought-free life. True? We cannot guarantee a drought-free life. But when drought comes, the psalmist begins to question himself with the word of God. And this is awesome. He begins to preach to himself. Come on. You see, there could be the time to where you need preaching. And there's definitely been the times, plural upon top of plurals, to where I've needed preaching. But this is powerful from the word of God. It may be that there's no one else there to do the preaching. Take it out of this. Take it off the stage of Rocky Mount Baptist Church. There could be a time to where the family and friends are not there to speak and to preach truth into our life. It could be that we are seemingly alone in the world with no one else who even gives half of a rip. And the psalmist is in that type of a situation. And do you know what he does? He begins to preach the truth of God to himself. You see, preaching to yourself, it's great to have friends, amen? Family who cares about you. But there could be the time to where they're not available and it comes down to saying, you know what, I know what's true, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like life is without a point. It feels like like life is just horrific. No one cares. And you know what, life just sucks and I'm just gonna end it. I've talked to friends who've been through that. 
In those moments, I just pray that God takes Psalm 42 and embeds it deep within our heart. He takes the hammer of his grace and nails that stake down deep. So when we come to the time of drought and dryness, we will preach to ourselves. And we preach to ourselves. And when, our, when we tell ourselves to shut up and to stick it somewhere else, and I don't care, I want to be alone, I want to do this, I want to despair, we keep preaching and we keep preaching and we keep preaching and remind ourselves of the great truth of God's word. You see, and deep down, even though sometimes we may feel like completely giving up, you say, what, well, I don't even, I've tried to live right. By Jesus Christ, I've, I've, I've tried, but it hasn't worked. And Satan comes along and he says, you know what, that's exactly right. You know why it doesn't work? Well, it could be a couple things. One is because it doesn't work, it's maybe not true. But often Satan comes to many of us and he says, you know the reason why it didn't work? Because you jacked it up. Work for all those other normal people at the church. Your family, they, hadn't been, they, had, they have not been the screw up that you've been. I mean, look at you. Look at your life, look at your family, look at your finances. Just look at you. How could something ever work for you? And we hear those discouraging thoughts of despair to where we are completely and utterly without hope. But somewhere in the background, we hear the voice of Jesus Christ. And the voice of Jesus Christ is that there is always hope. There is always hope. And when we don't feel like there's hope, we don't see hope, we can't even smell it, we remind ourselves of the truth of God's word. And notice how the honesty continues in verse 6. He says, and he's being so honest. He apparently didn't go to many churches in the U.S. to where you have to act like everything's right when it's not and get an A in hypocrisy 101. He didn't take that class. Notice verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you. Man, that is good. The soul is cast down within me. And so because of that, the takeaway is therefore I remember good things coming from the one who is good. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. These are good times and good places, good memories Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls and all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You see, he's saying, I remember how it used to be. But it seems like in the, the book of James parallels this when he says sometimes when we doubt we're like, a, like someone who's just on the ocean just tossed to and fro by these waves when we doubt. And verse 8, notice how, have you, have you seen the, the psychological progression, for those of you who have studied those things, of brutal honesty and reminding himself of what he knows to be true, but what he doesn't feel is true, and then there's an emotional gushing again. There's an emotional release and being honest. It's an awesome, awesome passage of Scripture. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night... His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now let's stop and have a quick time out here. Usually when we are at the bottom, we do not feel like singing. And in fact, when people come around us and they start singing, it makes us want to punch them in the face. 
I mean, that's like if, you, if you're down to the down to the down and somebody comes by singing, it could be the Barney theme song or it could be these great songs we sung here today. And song has to do with emotion. What he's saying here is that songs, it's the song that comes from the truth of God. And when God shows up, he will bring me through and help me to learn to sing again. And in verse nine, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones. That's serious, y'all. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You remember Jesus when he was on the cross? These passages are referenced. Jesus, who tried to say, I mean, he was there all night, just wanted his friends to pray with him just, just for a while. But they're like, they're like I am sometimes. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm tired. And they went to sleep when they should have been praying. And Jesus was brutalized with fists, the stick, crown of thorns, public humiliation, beard torn out, slammed onto a Roman cross, and viciously had nails driven through his wrists and through his feet. And no one had Enough mercy to just say stop after he was raised and dropped jarringly into a hole. Still, even still, people were looking at him on the cross and they were saying these types of things. They were taunting him. He's dying. And if they truly didn't believe he was God in the flesh, he's just a man who's going to pass out pretty quick and the Romans will be very sure that it's done completely and totally. And verse 11, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Here's the final stage of self-preaching. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Hope in God. You see, that's something that's not been realized yet. You see, we hope, but what we hope for is not showed up yet. It's an exercise in faith. So he's saying, hope in God, for I will yet again praise him. And there's Jesus on the cross, and he even says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You talk about a time of spiritual drought. Even the night before, Jesus said, Father, and this, but this is not Jesus sinning. This is Jesus' humanity saying, if it is possible, just let this cup, this cup of judgment, this cup of a brutal execution, this cup of being, uh, in a sense, cut off from the Father, let this pass from me nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. And, and Jesus did that for the glory of God the Father and so that we could be saved and be conformed into his image. That's incredible. That if we can be very honest, that Jesus knew us and all that we would do and yet still was willing to go to the cross 
for us. And you say, well, Jeff, I believe, I believe those things. I believe they're true. But it seems like I'm hitting this road, this period, this slough of despond. It very well could be that God is bringing you through a time of spiritual drought and stagnation to cause your roots to go deep. I heard an illustration one time to where there was a, a a man who owned a vineyard, and it was a, it was a time of drought. And there wasn't much water to go around, and he was trying to keep his vines alive. And he was just barely giving this one vine just a tiny, tiny drop, just enough to keep it alive. And they say, well, you need, you need to give more. You need to give more. And, and his response was, I want to give it just enough to live so that when the drought and if it grows worse, it will know that its roots have to go deep. And it very well could be, guys, if we've searched our hearts and we're serving Jesus the best we know how, and stagnation and dryness just seem to come like an, in, I mean, an, an enemy horde into our lives, it could be that God is saying, you know what, because I love you, I'm going to bring you through a time of spiritual drought so that your roots can go deep, deep, deep. Because there's going to be a time that I'm going to bring you and maybe a group of people through something. And you're the one that I've chosen to be the rock for that group. Again, Spurgeon says that God has never used a man greatly until first he has wounded him deeply. But that's hard for our American minds to comprehend. But during the times of stagnation, during the times of dryness, those are the times that we need to run to Christ. To be honest like the psalmist was. To pour out our hearts before him. And to be real. And through that, through the emotions, through even the depression, we preach to ourselves. And we continue to preach to ourselves. And after that, and we get hoarse, we continue to do it again and again and again and again. Until the emotions are aligned with the truth of God's word.